Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. We are, uh, we are in this series that we have called Garden State, and we are looking at uh, this combination of six core longings that God created every single person that has ever lived at any point in history. And we've taken this name from the reality that there was a point in time in the Genesis story in which we read about Adam and Eve living in the garden that God created for them, and they experienced these six core longings being fully and truly satisfied by God and by one another uh, until sin disrupted the whole thing. And so the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done on our behalf, we are invited to come back to God and to experience the satisfaction of these longings that we are all looking to have satisfied in our lives. And so we've talked about a number of those. You can find all of those online if you missed any of those messages. But this morning, we're going to talk about love. And on the topic of love, you know, Tammy and I are just a few weeks away from our 17th wedding anniversary. I know, I know, it's a big deal, especially because of how young I look. You're like, how young did you get married? Uh, so we, we are really excited about that. We were supposed to go to Hawaii for our 15th wedding anniversary, and then 2020 happened. You know what I mean? I'm not even going to say the C word, but it happened. And uh, so we're making up that trip by going up to Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, in a couple of weeks, which we're really excited about. And one of the adventures that we have scheduled is the Capilano Suspension Bridge. I brought a picture of it this morning. Now, when you look at that bridge, one of two things happens for you. You either find it exhilarating or you find it terrifying. And that's based on your own personal relationship with heights. Personally, I'm not super afraid of heights. I'm far more afraid of falling from a high place and being killed on impact. That's more where my fear lies, which I guess could be described as a fear of heights. But, uh, but, but every time I look at this picture, which I, I, keep, I keep opening it up pretty regularly, be like, that's the bridge, huh? Is that like some kind of weird drone shot that makes it look so high? And it turns out it's actually that high and that long. But every time I look at this picture, I experience what Brennan Manning referred to as the divorce between the head and the heart. And here's what I mean by that. I know, I know in my head looking at that picture, that bridge is not going to fall when I step on it. I've actually done the research. In fact, it's never fallen. Uh, not well, it did get hit by a tree once and it fell that time, but there was no people on it. It was because of a storm. But it's never been like someone stepped on it and it just snapped and broke. It's never happened. And millions of people visit this bridge every year. So I know in my head, when I put my foot on this bridge, it's going to hold. The problem is, I don't know if I'm actually going to like believe that until I actually take that first step. You know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a significant difference for us between knowledge and belief. And this divorce between our head and our hearts is a central challenge in our relationship with God. So often, we are faced with the challenge of bridging that gap between knowledge and belief. And I would argue that that is especially true when it comes 
to our longing for God's love. I would, I would venture a guess that no one in here and no one listening would be super surprised to come to a church and to hear a pastor say, hey, God loves you. And if that comes as a shock to you, you've been in some really bad churches in the past. But my guess is most of us, it's not new information to hear that the Bible would say to us that God does actually love us. We're not shocked. That's not new information. We hear that. We've heard that before. We know that to be true. The problem is we all really struggle to believe it's true, meaning to feel the reality of God's truly unconditional, unrelenting love for us. Which is why I've chosen this as our big idea for the morning. Our challenge as followers of Jesus is less knowing God loves us and more experiencing that as true. Our challenge is less knowing that God loves us and more experiencing that as true. See, knowledge is primarily cerebral. It's cognitive. It, it exists in the mind, but experience connects that knowledge to our hearts. Experience connects that knowledge to our emotions. And so the bridge between knowledge and belief is experience. And so to that end, I want to sit with three questions this morning regarding God's love that we long for and really try to work our way toward how do we, how do we move toward an experience of God's love rather than just this kind of vague belief or knowledge that we hold in our heads. So we're going to look at these three questions. And I think it's important we start with, with an obvious question, which is how do we actually know God loves us? Rather than just make that assumption, how do we know that God loves us? And if like me, which many of you didn't, but if like me, you grew up in the church, then the truth is we have been singing the answer to that question since childhood. Since birth, I have been hearing these words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the truth is the Bible does from start to finish on nearly every page in some way does declare that God loves every single person who has ever drawn breath in this world. And that it would take a lifetime for us to explore everything that scripture has to say. And so for the sake of time this morning, I really just want to look at one passage in the New Testament book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're just going to look at verses 7 through 11. If you don't have a Bible this morning, all the text is going to be on the screen. And I'm going to get to that in just one minute. But there is something that you should know about John. If you don't know, John was one of the original 12 uh, that spent three years with Jesus. He's also the author of the gospel that bears his name. So he gave a long account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus uh, in his gospel. And then he wrote this series of letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, John had a nickname, and it was a great nickname. It was the disciple Jesus loved, which is pretty awesome. Like, there's a lot of nicknames that we might carry around. Like, I got called Huggies, like the diaper as a kid growing up. Didn't love that because my last name's Hughley. Kids are real mean. No one wants to be named after a diaper. But, uh, but this is a really beautiful nickname. 
the disciple that Jesus loved. Now we know that Jesus loved all of his disciples, but it does indicate to us that there was something that was uniquely intimate about John's relationship with Jesus, that there was an aspect of experiencing how loving Jesus was that John understood that the other disciples maybe did not to the same degree. And we see that become evident specifically in 1 John chapter 4. Do you know that from 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to 21, the word love appears some 32 times in all of its forms. In just those few verses, 32 times love is mentioned. This is the most condensed section of scripture on the subject of love in the entire Bible. And there's no one who was more qualified to write that than John. And so, another thing you should know about John, John was not what I would describe as as like a linear thinker. Uh, When we read the Apostle Paul, this is one of the beautiful things about Scripture being written through the personalities of multiple people. The Apostle Paul was an attorney by vocation, and so he thought in a straight line. Thought A leads to thought B, leads to thought C. That's how I think. I'm a very linear thinker. John was not like that. John is a cyclical thinker. And so it's very hard when you take like a big passage to try to outline it clearly in any way because he just kind of thinks like this. Now, the benefit to John's cyclical thinking, specifically on this subject of love, is he just keeps hitting the same themes over and over and over and over. It just sucks to have to preach it, okay? But it's helpful in really getting deep into our souls all of this information that he wants to convey about the love of God. And so let me just read these verses to you, and then we'll just draw out a couple of points from it to pay attention to. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, John writes this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. All right, a couple of different things that I think in this cyclical thinking of John's that we can draw out. The first is this, that 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 love is defined by God. Love is defined by God. Notice at the very beginning, he says love is from God. He says that God is love. Now, Alex Early, who uh, wrote this tremendous book called The Reckless Love of God, he says this, we cheapen deep words by their overuse, abuse, and misreading. And I think that's very, very true. And that's certainly true in the case of love. Think about how broadly we use the word love. In the same breath, I can express that I love my wife and that I love pizza. Both of those things are true. But I clearly don't love them in the same way, right? We wouldn't have made it 17 years if I was constantly prioritizing pizza over... Thankfully, it's a mutual love that we share in common. But in Greek, and many of you probably know this, in Greek, there was a much more deliberate and specific way in which the Greek people spoke about love. And when we read the scriptures in the original language, we see that there were actually four different types of love that are spoken of in the Bible. 
So there is one that is specific to family. There's one that's specific to friends. There's one that is specific to romantic love that might be shared between romantic partners. And then there's agape love, which is a, a type of love that is distinct to, to who God is and to who God intends his people to be. So they just had a lot more diversity in how they could talk about these things. But in our language, we just have this word love. And as a result, it has cheapened and confused our understanding of what this word really means. And so if you think about it, that phrase, God is love, even people who have very limited exposure to the scriptures, even people who are not Christians, probably have a sense that, that, that they've heard that verse before, that God is love. And oftentimes you will hear even people who don't have a real relationship with God say things like, well, you know, God is love. Now, typically in our culture, when we use this verse like that, what we really mean is, well, because God loves me, he would never contradict me. And I would submit to you that that's a very low view of love, that no love really works that way. In fact, I would argue that God has both a left and a right hand to his love. And they are in balance all of the time. So on the one hand, God's love is comforting. And he lifts us up. And he helps us. And he encourages us. And he is good to us. And he is kind to us. But on the other hand, God's love is also corrective as well. And if you're a parent with kids or you've ever been around a kid, you know like, Correction is an, is an essential aspect and demonstration of love. Agreed? And so God is the exact same way. We are actually told in the book of Hebrews that God disciplines the ones that he loves, that he corrects. Now, here's what I think is really important for us to understand, especially if you had kind of an authoritarian, mean dad, which some of us did, then when you hear about God, God's discipline and God's correction, you immediately project your experience onto God. And that is a broken way for us to form our image of how God loves us in a corrective manner. That's not his heart. God's heart for us is always that we would flourish, that we would thrive, that we would be healthy. And so this is kind of a cheesy phrase, but it is one that's easy to memorize. I was thinking about it this week. Maybe you can walk away in your own mind that correction is protection. When it comes to God, correction is always about protection. I'm also going to quote Post Malone in the close. So if you're wondering, like, is Ryan making a, a bit of a pivot into hip-hop? We'll see how this goes, okay? But correct, correction is always protection when it comes to God. If there is ever anything that God says to us by way of correction, it is always so that we will be healthier, so that we will be happier, and so that we will be more whole. And so God has both of those aspects to his love. So love is defined by God. But secondly, we also learn that love is displayed by God. Look at verse nine again. It says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now notice that John says that love was revealed. That means that God displayed love to us. Now that's good news because it means that we're not left to just speculate about, well, does God really love us? We know he does because he's revealed it. And he has revealed that by sending Jesus 
God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, to be our atoning sacrifice. Other translations will use this older word propitiation, but that's what the word means. It means an atoning sacrifice. It means that Jesus stood in our place and he endured what we deserve. Jesus was not crucified because of any of his own sin. He had no sin. He was crucified for our sin. He stood in our place, even though he did not deserve anything that he experienced. He set us aside and said, I will endure this on your behalf. And the Bible would hold that up as the clearest display of love. And it teaches us that by definition, love is the sacrificing of self for the good of another. Which more and more as Christians in our country and in our culture is very, very difficult for us. To be a Christian that is marked by love is to sacrifice self for the good of another, to sacrifice our rights, to sacrifice our comfort, to sacrifice our desires for the good of another. That is the definition of Christian love. And we know that because that is what God displayed to us. And then finally, we learn that love is demanded by God for one another. Look again at verse seven. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. And then at the end in verse 11, he says, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So his point is this, loved people are meant to love people. Because we have been recipients of God's love, we are called to respond to one another with the exact same kind of love in which we have received from God. And it also teaches us that you and I play a central role in one another's ability to experience God's love. See, the reason that we struggle to receive God's love is because somewhere along the way, somewhere in someone important in our life who God meant to be a demonstration of his own love to us did not love us well. And as a result of that, a script was written on your soul that had these messages that says that you are unworthy of love, that you are unlovable, that you are only worthy of love if you perform up to a certain standard, and that broke our entire understanding of love. See, the truth is, the reality that God is love is good news or bad news based on your understanding of that word and your experience with that word. And God intends us to agape one another, to love one another in a selfless, serving manner, so that through that experience with one another, we would begin to have this script that is written on our soul, rewritten, that tells us, men, that God loves us unconditionally, that he forgives, that he is gracious, that he is merciful. And so my guess would be, especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, and some of you might be here and you might be very front end on your own spiritual journey and have had little exposure to the scriptures. And so if this is like new information to you, I would encourage you just allow that to soak into your heart this morning. But if you've been following God for any season of time, my guess is none of what I just said is new information to you. My guess is you come into this place knowing that God has defined love, that he displays love, that he demands that we would love one another in response to his love. We we know all that, which means there's a second question that we have to ask. And that second question is this, what is it then that prevents us from experiencing his love? What prevents 
our experience of his love. How do we be like, what is it that is blocking this bridge that gets us across this gap from knowledge to belief? What is it that blocks that? Well, I think there's probably a lot of different things, but there's two huge ones that I think demand our attention. And the first one is hurt. The first thing that prevents our experience of his love is our own hurt. Many of us live with wounds from the past that prohibit our experience of God's love for us in the present. Consider that again. Many of us live with wounds from the past that prohibit our experience of God's love for us in the present. Some examples would be if you have a history of being abused in some way, in any way, you might really struggle to experience the love of God in your life. If you were neglected, especially severely growing up, you might really struggle to believe and to know that God loves you. And when you hear neglect, don't just think like as a kid, you were locked in a closet in the dark. You can have a caregiver who is very physically present in your life and emotionally absent, and it has almost the same effect on the soul. Maybe you were abandoned at some point in your life by someone that was meant to provide care and support and nurture to you. Maybe you were taught that love is attached to performance. And so when you do well, which usually means perfect, then you are worthy of love. But if you fail, you are not. Any of those experiences, especially in our youngest years of life, our most formative years of life, if you have any of those experiences, all of them have a way of obstructing our ability to receive God's love. And so when it comes to experiencing God's love, our wounds are like walls. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, we got our kids a portable basketball hoop that I thought I could for sure build in about a half hour. It took four hours, okay? It took four hours and all of the joy out of my life. Got this thing built though, and uh, it sits um, right in front of our drive, like just off to the side of our driveway in the street, just like nestled up against the gutter. And our kids have been playing with it like crazy. It's great. We love it. But I noticed this the other day. I was out there playing with Ryder, I think last Saturday. And uh, our neighbors, like three doors down from us, their, their sprinklers come on every single morning. And I don't think one of their sprinklers is pointed toward their yard. It just sprays all the water in the street. And their grass is like hella dead. And for some reason, they're just like, no, these things seem to be working fine. They're not fine, but the asphalt's doing real well. So we were out there playing as these sprinklers are going off into the street. And I noticed that when those are on, that the water just comes rushing down uh, the gutter by our house and that I had set the hoop so far back into the gutter that it was blocking it. So there was just like this pond of water next to our basketball hoop that I had to pull forward so that that water could get by. And wounds have a similar blocking effect to our ability to receive and to experience the love of God in our lives. They block the flow of God's love to our heart. Now, the good news is Jesus is determined to heal. In fact, there's a Hebrew scholar by the name of Brad Young, and he said the foundation of Jesus' ministry was healing love for others. That was the foundation. Like, what did Jesus come to do? He primarily came to heal spiritually, emotionally, physically, 
relationally. Look at every single thing that Jesus did. And you will find that he did everything through the lens of providing healing to hurting people. And so Jesus wants to heal the effects of these wounds, wounds that cause you and I to believe that God could never love us. And more often than not, that healing takes time and it takes intention. And we'll talk about how we can begin to move toward that in just a few moments. But first, it's important that we do understand that that hurt that we carry is this huge obstacle to our experience of God's love for us. And it's not the only one. I would argue that the second largest obstacle to our experience of God's love is hurry. It's hurry. We live at such a pace and such a clip that it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for us to truly experience God's love for us. There's a pastor by the name of John Ortberg. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's written a bunch of books, but he tells this story about when he was working at Willow Creek Community Church, which is in uh, the Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago. It's one of the largest, most influential churches of the last 30 years. He was a pastor there. And he hit this point where he felt like his, his own soul was beginning to shrivel as he was being chewed up in the machine that is the megachurch, which is a common experience. And so he called his friend Dallas Willard, uh, and Dallas Willard is one of the best writers, teachers, thinkers on spiritual formation in the last hundred years. And so he called his, if anybody can help me, it's Dallas Willard. So he calls Dallas Willard and he says, man, what do I need to do to become the me that I actually want to be? He said there was a long pause on the other end of the call. And then Dallas Willard said one sentence, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So John Ortberg wrote that down and he goes, all right, what else? (laughs) And then Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Here is just the honest to God truth. Many of us are just too busy to experience deep, intimate relationship with God. And I don't say that to make anybody, I'm not saying, I don't say that in a shaming way. Like I'm saying it of myself too. It's all of our our culture is bent toward hurry. And there is something about being a disciple of Jesus that means practicing resistance to that hurry. That we are going to pull away from that and say, no, culture does not set the trajectory of my life. Jesus does. And Jesus, there's not one point in, this has been pointed out thousands of times in sermons before, but there's not, you know, there's not one point in scripture where Jesus runs. I think that's interesting. He's never just running from one. He's never like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have time to heal you right now. I got to get back over here. That's never, Jesus just seems to move at a pretty calm clip. And he invites his disciples into relationship with him. They spent almost every day for three years right by his side, moving at his pace. And there were times that they tried to hurry him along and he resisted. And that's because hurry does damage to our souls. And so if we are going to experience the love of God, again, in an experiential way, it is going to demand, like you can gain more information on the go. You can listen to theology podcast as you drive and as you are on the treadmill and as you're doing all those other things, experiencing God's love for you. 
is going to require that we slow down. And so the third question is, how can we move toward experiencing God's love? And I, I, I put it that way on purpose because it is about moving toward, okay? There, is, there isn't like a, a switch that you're going to flip and it's going to take time. It'll take experimenting on our part. But the question is, how do we just begin to take some steps? How do we move toward experiencing his love? And so I want you to think about those two obstacles that we talked about, hurt and hurry. What do we do with those? Well, because of our wounds, we need to see our formation as a healing journey. That it is a journey that we are being invited onto. And on that journey, we have to become aware of our wounds, know what they are. Some of us don't know. I was 38 years old before I started to get a sense of the deep woundedness that I had carried all of my life. And I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. I've sat in tons of different kinds of churches, read lots and lots of books, went, and still went through so much of my life blind to this area of my own soul. And what's, we say this all the time, but what's hidden can't be healed. So we have to become aware of our woundedness. We have to recognize it as such. And once we become aware of where these wounds exist in us, it's very important that we invite Jesus into those things because oftentimes we're kind of like wounded animals who don't want anywhere near our wounds, including Jesus. Our dog Wicket has bad hips. I didn't even know that could be a thing for dogs, but he's like an old man. And so every time in the winter, when we get like the first cold, or if we get a huge temperature variation throughout the winter, his hips get really, really tight and he like limps or it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch. He shakes. And if you come anywhere near him, despite how much he loves us, which based on what I can tell, he loves us a lot. Because every time I leave and re-enter a room, it's like, I, I thought you were gone forever. I'm just so glad you're back. So he has a deep affection for us. But if you get near him and you touch his hip, he will snap because he doesn't want you near his wound. And that is the same thing that a lot of us do in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with God. We say, God, you can have all of this, but this, is, this I have to protect. I can't trust you to come into this wound and to heal. I'm going to hold this back. I'm going to protect myself from being hurt ever again. And the reality is Jesus wants to invade and to heal every wound present in our life. And the reality is that the vast majority of us, if not all of us on this healing journey, we are all going to need guides to help us because we aren't equipped to do it on our own. And in fact, God doesn't intend for any of us to do it on our own. He intends for us to be on this healing journey with other people. And so just, just by way of a starting point, if you've not read the book by Peter Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I'd highly recommend that you pick up that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's a great starting point on so many of the aspects that are foundational to who we are as a church as well, and a curriculum that we're going to continue to use with Formation Church to pursue emotional healing together. So if you haven't read that, check that out, but there's a possibility that this, if you've been here, you're like, I know what he's going to say. You might need some therapy. You might need a spiritual director in your life. You might need help discerning the wounds that you carry and what to do with them. And I want to make myself open and accessible to be of help to that in any way that I can. 
And so even as, as you're sitting here today and, and you're, maybe there's something inside you that the Spirit seems to be drawing attention to, like I think this is an area of significant woundedness in my own life. Set up some time, reach out to me, and I would love to get together and just be able to talk about what it is that you feel like God might be saying to you. But because of those wounds, we need to see our formation as a healing journey. Secondly, another way that we move toward an experience of God's love, because of our pace, we have to slow down to be with Jesus. We have to slow down to be with Jesus. And this is why in the Church Center app, we have that three by five method. There's a button right on there that helps us daily slow down in a meaningful way to be with God, to sit with God every single day. But I also want to say just a couple of things about the way that we read Scripture. Because Scripture is a primary way, the primary way that God intends to communicate with us and to help us experience His love. And so for that to happen, it's really going to require that we take the time to engage our imagination when we read. And I don't know if you've ever been told that you should use your imagination when you read Scripture, but there is a long, long history of it. And the reason for that is that the imagination is this tremendous tool that God has given us for bridging the gap between knowledge and, and belief. There's actually a study that I was reading about yesterday that was done at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And they found that participants who imagined an event taking place had the, re the same regions in their brain light up as, those who as when they actually experienced that. So just imagining the event taking place lights up all the same places in the brain as actually experiencing it, which means that whether it's happening in real time or you're thinking about it and imagining it in your mind, the body is processing it in a very, very similar way. Now that can be very problematic when the things that we imagine and the places that our heads go back to are traumatic experiences in our life that we are reliving over and over and over and over again. But this research is helping people with anxiety and PTSD experience immense healing as a result of it. And I just keep thinking about the, 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 the way that we can take this new learning and apply it to our own formation, apply it to the way that we read scripture. A thousand years ago, St. Ignatius was a huge proponent of using the imagination in scripture, that, that as we, we would not just read for information, but seek with our imagination to put ourselves in what it is that we are reading, to imagine what it would be like, what you would see if you were there, what you would hear around you if you were there, what you would smell, what you would feel when you were there. We have to use our imaginations as we read scripture. Imagine with me that you were at Jesus' baptism. As he comes up out of those waters, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And he hears the Father speak over him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And Paul over and over uses this reference of us being in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you know the Father speaks those same words over you. Imagine putting yourself in that position and hearing the Father speak over you. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And I am pleased with you. 
Some of us never heard those words from our earthly parents. And it will mark you in a healing manner to hear those words from your heavenly father. Imagine being a leper who was touched by Jesus rather than people running from him and rejecting him. He experiences the physical touch, the look of compassion and love on Jesus' face. But all of that, putting ourselves into these stories, actually imagining these in an experiential way taking place, that's really hard to accomplish in a hurry. So we have to slow down to be with Jesus. Now, in all of this talk of God's love for us, it's really, really important that we understand we're not talking about doing any of these things in order to earn some love that we don't possess. What we're being invited to do is to receive the gift of love that Jesus has already offered to us. And this is what brings me to this conversation that I was listening to this week with the great modern-day theologian, Post Malone. He, uh, he's, if you don't know who he is, he's not a theologian, he's a musician. Um, and uh, he was talking with the interviewer about this particular season in his life that was uniquely dark. And he said that in the midst of the darkness, he was still very much surrounded by people who really loved him and cared for him. But he would not allow those people's love to really affect him in, in any way. And so he continued to really struggle with uh, alcohol abuse, I believe, was the specific context that he was talking about in that season of his life. And he just couldn't, he, like all, despite the fact that all of this love and support was around him and offered to him, it had no effect on him because he did not let it in. And so he said, the lesson that I learned in that was you have to take the love you're offered. And I think that's a pretty profound sentence. And I think that's never more true than when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. You have to take the love you're offered. Jesus' posture toward every one of us right now is arms open, extending love to us. And sadly, for any number of reasons, many of us have turned our backs on that love. Sure, we might carry around a knowledge that it's there. Sure, we might go through all of the religious motions that create the appearance that we are actually living in relationship with God, but in reality, we have closed ourselves off to the love of God. And I would argue, and this is at least true for me, it is way harder to receive love than it is to give it. Like I think about in some of the settings that I'm in for my spiritual direction program, for instance, any, any time that we are in like kind of our small group and we are working to affirm or encourage one another, man, I have no problem doing that. And the moment it comes around and it's my turn, I want to crawl under the couch and die. And I think many of us squirm under the loving gaze of God. Because there is something that has been written on our souls that says that we are unworthy of God's love. And the reality is, because of our sin, we aren't worthy of God's love. But he's chosen to set it upon us anyways. And we would be fools 
to not receive that gift. It isn't easy. It's a muscle that has to be built, a skill that has to be learned, an art that has to be learned. But Jesus' love is extended to us. The question is, will we receive it? So why don't we close and pray that we would. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. And we thank you, Lord, that you haven't just said, I love you, take my word for it, that you have demonstrated that love. Jesus, you became our atoning sacrifice. You stood in our place. You bore the punishment that was ours, earned by our own sin. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we also just openly and adamantly admit this morning that there is a disconnect between what we read in Scripture, what we might even assent to in our minds, acknowledging that your word says you do love us, but there is a disconnect in what we actually believe in our hearts. And Lord, I know that there is no more healing reality than your love for us. And so we are in desperate need of experiencing that love to be true. But we can't do that without your help. And so we ask that you would help us move toward an experience with your love. And I pray as we get ready to remember communion this morning, that even these next few moments would be an opportunity to experience your love in a deeper and a fresh way. Help us. And thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.